Welcome to the Invincible Innovation Show, the podcast for changemakers. Each week, I talk to the most fascinating entrepreneurs and innovation leaders about innovation, strategy, and design. Hey, everyone. Today, we're going to talk about what makes a great brand strategy. Welcome to Invincible Innovation Live. So I'm so glad that you're here. I'm Adina Zorkaryo, Product Innovation and Value Creation Expert, and I'll be your host. And I have a very special guest with me. Hi, Chloe. Hi. Lovely to join you today. Hey. And Chloe Williams is the founder of Eighth Day, and it's like the second or third time that we talk. And we already had a, a discussion like a few, I think like half a year ago, and it was great. So I'm sure it's going to be really interesting. We're live on LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook, and you're so invited to join the discussion and ask questions. And now we can start. So we're talking about brand strategy. So what makes a great brand strategy? And, and could you give us some examples? You know, everybody knows like Apple, Nike, but other than that. Exactly. Um, yeah, I think when we're working with clients and we're looking at great examples of brand strategy, the ones that are really successful, the ones that are really simple, really clear. And I think that's really important if you're a global brand, because you need to translate that into local languages. So if you've got a team where English is their second language or it's originated in another language, having something that's really simple that everyone can remember and get behind is really important for consumers, but also for employees. And I think what we find quite a lot is the most successful ones are those ones that really tap into something that we can all feel happening in the world today. So something that's going on in society and culture, you know, attention or emotion that really transcends geography that we all feel as people. And that's, you know, what makes a great strategy. And I think the other thing is something that's going to last three to five years. You know, a brand strategy shouldn't be for the very short term. It should be something that the brand can commit against for a number of years. And it's really about the brand creating the vision of the future they want to see. So rather being driven by what's going on in the world, it's about what does the brand want to stand for in three to five year times? And then really, you have to ask yourself, as a brand, have we got permission to talk about this? You know, emotionally, functionally, can we deliver it credibly? And I think the other thing with a lot of clients when we're assessing brand strategy is, is it big enough to run multiple campaigns? So if you think about the communications you need to run off a brand strategy, you're looking at, you know, twice a year for some brands having a big campaign idea. Is the idea big enough that you can use it for multiple campaigns? And I think in today's world, can it also go across multiple touch points? So can it work online, in-store and in virtual worlds? So those are kind of some of the overarching principles. But yeah. to your point about examples, um, I think, you know, you mentioned Nike there. Um, and I do a lot of work with Adidas. And they have a position which is about sport has the power to change lives for the better. And I think that's a really interesting one because it's about this idea of evolution, which really anyone can connect to. But it also taps into mental and physical well-being that you can feel in society at the world today. And another one that I love is Johnny Walker and Keep Walking. And you think they've had that brand positioning since 1999, but it's evolved. So in the beginning, it was really about personal progress, personal evolution, keep walking. But recently, they've evolved it to kind of tap into the more collective mentality we have today. So this idea of keep walking and progression is about helping others around you also progress at the same time. So they have a great brand strategy, but they've also managed to evolve it as well without needing to change it. 
And then yeah. one of my favorite examples is a really old one, which is Dove Beauty. You know, that was all about real beauty and it was held up as one of the best brand strategies. And I think what's interesting when you look at that brand today, at the time, it really tapped into culture and something that women really wanted to feel empowered to own their bodies. But today it's really fallen down. You don't hear so much about it. It's kind of dropped back. And then you get brands like Rihanna Fenty which have come out and they talk about real beauty, but in a way that's much more modern, it connects to a much younger target. And that brand, when it started, was all about diversity, diverse skin tones, diverse body shapes, you know, showing real people. So it's interesting how you can take one brand strategy and then see how other brands have started to own it in a more culturally relevant way. Yeah, before I continue, we have one of our uh, viewers, Ayesha, how are you? And she loves the Johnny Walker keep walking example. And thank you for being with us. And I want to ask you something. You said like they need to be sure that they are allowed to say that or to speak that language. Because in Israel, we see many employers branding because they want to brand themselves as a good company to work with for. Um, yeah. And And I think that in some cases, they're doing things that are not really attached to the way that they are perceived. And most people would think that they are more old fashioned and they want to be perceived as differently. And then it doesn't match sometimes. Yeah. So and I think could, that's the real thing. It's about permission, I suppose, and proof points because a brand can change, but it has to, I suppose, walk the walk at the same time. So a brand can start to say it's going to be something. But if there's no proof there that it's moving in that direction, you know, a brand can show progress that we're going to start. You know, do you think sustainability brands weren't sustainable and now they're all talking about it and they're all showing their journey? So I think an employer and a brand can talk about, you know, this is where we want to get to. But if it's just, you know, brand washing and it's just saying things and there's no proof behind it, that's when it feels fake. But if they're doing things and they're trying to change, you know, then you can start to see that they've got, you know, functional proof points in the way they're behaving, what they're saying and doing that can help, you know, give them permission as well. I think that today to be a very um, differentiated brand is so hard. We have so many brands in front of us. And you need to differentiate in a way that first it will be remembered and second it will be you will be engaged with the message and it seems that it's so hard to create that today right we have so many messages and and, and even if we hear it sometimes we're cynical like yeah they, this is what they're saying but they're not really like that they, they want to be perceived as this way but they're not really you know and, and we have brands that are you know focused in the attention of people against them in some cases so what could they do you know in that case yeah and i think it goes back to that point about it being long lasting so a brand strategy should be something you commit to for a number of years because people need to hear it over and over and over again you know tell them tell them again tell them again tell them again because The messages are so short, you know, we're talking two seconds of seeing something. You need to build up that, you know, kind of muscle memory with consumers so that they know what your brand's about, but also seeing it consistently across touch points. So when they go in detail, when they're scrolling on social media, what they see on TV, what they see at, on ads on YouTube, you know, all of these things need to connect back to the red thread. And that's why you need a really clear, succinct strategy so that, you know, everyone knows what they are doing, connects back into it. And then it's about that repetition so that eventually, you know, in two, three, four years time, and we know from innovation, you know, it's hard to get new products to have success these days. If they don't win in six months, often they get delisted, you know, and they're removed from the shelves. I think it's very much the same with brands. You have to remember that it's repetition. 
Yeah. And sometimes it, it seems that it, it's like, you know, so much competition in the market, in the marketing area, you know, to get there. And you need to, to really create a change that will take sometimes, as you say, years. And I think that sometimes it's really hard to know if the brand is working or not. If you compare it to marketing, which is so obvious if it's working or not. So this is like a big gap between the strategy and the tactics, actually. So exactly. how can a company yeah. know that maybe it's not the right brand direction or, or it is and they should just wait? Yeah, I mean, it's really hard because obviously what's going on in culture impacts our relationship with brands as well. You know, some brands do really well. And, you know, like we were talking about Dove a minute ago, you know, at the time it was revolutionary, but now it feels slightly different. But their core message about, you know, real beauty is still relevant. It's just the way they're bringing it to life to the market is not resonating anymore. So the core idea of the brand is correct, but it's the marketing that's really not connecting. So I think you have to, you know, in some ways hold your nerve as well and just kind of keep trying new things. But your strategy should really be true to the brand itself. Your communications could be much more short term. So it's playing around with the marketing versus the brand strategy to see what works. Yeah. So how do you uncover and research brand strategy? Uh, so a lot of my background is um, ethnographic consumer research. So I do a lot of talking to people um, about how they feel about culture, how they feel about brands overall. So if we're working on a project for a client, we'll look at understanding culture. We'll look at understanding people and then also looking at the category and seeing how that's evolving, what their competitors are doing, but also threats outside of their category they might not be thinking about yet, but they're competing for attention with consumers. And the other thing we do when we're looking at researching brand strategy is making sure we're looking at the world of tomorrow, not just the world of today. So talking to leading edge consumers who are driving change and starting to behave in different ways. And then what we tend to do is go in with a very much exploratory mindset. So looking at what's going on in their lives, how they're interacting with the category, what their emotions are, and then exploring potential territories. So looking at statements, looking at emotions, what they think about the brand and the category overall. So we, we can really understand, OK, what's working and what's not. And if I give you an example for, you know, one of my favorite projects for brand strategy, it was for Sunsilk, which is a hair care brand. Um, so they do shampoos and conditioners. They're very big in Brazil, Indonesia and India. And they really wanted to understand the emotions of younger women. So people who are 18, 19, 20, kind of going out into the world, looking for their first job, going off to university, kind of how they could connect to them and tap into their aspirations for themselves and understand really what was holding these women back from being their best selves. And that meant we needed to get to like really interesting emotions. So to do that, we got young women and their mums together and we got them having conversations about their hopes and fears for each other. And, you know, what the mum had enabled the daughter to do, what the daughter was inspired from her mum. So we had mums and daughters all around the world crying in rooms together because they started having conversations with each other that they just don't ever have, you know, about a Brazilian woman calling her mum the warrior, you know, the path she forged. So it was really interesting to get to these emotions that we often don't say out loud because that's really what the brand needs to tap onto yeah. and to kind of make part of its positioning. So those are really like powerful ways of doing it. And then we had a really interesting challenge a couple of years ago looking at helping Lego and their agencies understand play and what play means, but to kids. So can you imagine exploring a brand strategy with kids? It's pretty impossible. So we had yeah. to get quite creative with, you know, 
how do you even get kids to think about brands in an interesting way? So we had kids playing with Lego, showing us their creations, what they were making. We needed to go to countries where play is very different. So we were in China, we were in the US, we were in Brazil, looking at, okay, what is play about from a social perspective? What is society telling us about play? Is it valuable? Is it not valuable? What are parents telling their kids about play? And then what do kids themselves think? Um, and it was fascinating because we had these ideas around, you know, is Lego about making something perfect? You know, you see the picture on the box and you're like, I've made the castle or the Millennium yeah. Falcon, and then yes. I put it on a shelf and I leave it. Or is Lego about these box of amazing pieces that you can put together, make something, take it apart, put it together again, take it apart. So what we did was we created stories for children based around the idea of different positionings. And we had book cover on each of the stories so that the kids could say, oh, this is the story I want to read and why. So we managed to have things like Make, Break, Make as one story, you know, Dave the Builder as another one, like Chloe the Creator as another one. So we could see which positioning territories were the kids gravitating towards, which helped us understand where Lego might be able to play um, in its yeah. evolving positioning. So that was and, a really and, interesting and challenge. Just because I'm interested, what's the difference between a, a Chinese kid playing and an American kid playing? Like, because think, it's a different yeah. way of thinking totally different and I think it's really fascinating because it, it a lot in China is about succeeding and doing something the right way so you are about here's the picture of the thing I am building and I'm going to make it and then it is perfect and it goes on a shelf and I never play with it again versus when I grew up Lego was very much like here's a box be creative you know make a pirate ship that's also a dinosaur and you know and it's very different the way that kids are engaging with it um, and it's also fascinating when you talk to kids about you know what is the value of play because a lot of society is telling kids play is just silly fun you don't have a job in play you know play doesn't lead yeah. to a job it's not maths it's not English it's not science which you yeah. know for me designer I always find it really sad because yeah. you know playing and drawing and art was you know my favorite topic at school so when you hear kids going you know oh well you know I drop play after a while because I have to focus on you know science studying yeah, yeah exactly. you know when, when we're saying that I think that the world is changing to, to a direction to play is much more important and being emotional yeah. and being empathic and, and being spontaneous and creative oh, exactly. is much more important yeah. today than than yeah. what we we think. And sometimes what what you said is like we ask the kids, but but they're trained to do something by society, by their parents. I guess maybe their parents are expecting them to build the castle in a perfect way. And, and exactly. I think that, that that it's like what we're telling kids about what they should be because I'm just imagining that if they didn't have the parents in the room. Many of them would just play as they want. That's maybe I'm mistaken. I guess it's yeah. it's more a cultural point of view that you need to create something. It needs to be practical. You need to have a delivery in the end. Um, yeah, and I think it's the difference between having a box of Lego with just bricks in, and the picture on the front is bricks, versus here's a box of Lego which is designed to make a thing. And I think to your point about you know the skills it learns as a kid you learn how to deal with the unexpected you know and adapt whereas we saw some kids you know if you get to the end of building a castle and one piece is missing they go like you know they have a meltdown <laughs> because it's not perfect 
Whereas, you know, other kids will respond with, okay, I'm going to change it and then I'll adapt it and I'll use this piece instead. So I think it really helps teach kids how to, you know, think on their feet and adapt as well. So it's a skill beyond just play. It's, you know, how do you cope when yeah. something goes wrong? You learn, okay, well, I can do something different instead, which we realize, you know, kids are using that through Lego as well. You know, you're learning to be adaptable, you know, deal with volatility, the unexpected. So, so if there is, let's say Lego is, is an international brand, they need to find a message and we talk to, to both kinds of, of kids, the one who's more, you know, um, perfect and the one who's more playful or creative. What would they say? Like, because they need to, to it's very different one from the other. So they need something that, this is, that, that is not that. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, you can go with a the big theme about, you know, imagination. Because imagination is a big enough idea that you can be both kids, both sides of the coin. So it can be, okay, now I've built the castle. I can imagine what the world is like in the castle versus a kid that might be like, okay, I can imagine I can make a Tyrannosaurus Rex cross with a pirate. So you need a theme that's part of your strategy that you can then run campaigns that talk to both of them. And that might be different kinds of parents, different kinds of kids, or even just different geographies. And the packaging is different. If you go to find a Lego package in, in China, it will be different than what you buy in the US or not? It's the same. Um, so they're all the same systems, but the way you talk about them can then be nuanced uh, by each market. So what makes a successful global brand strategy? I think to build on that, it's that idea of you know having a global strategy that is also enable to flex to a local market so you can evolve that brand to work locally as well but there does need to be that red thread to the global positioning so that you can see okay if i went anywhere around the world i still get this brand is exactly the same but there is some sense of i understand the local culture and i know how to make it work so you can look at mcdonald's and kfc fundamentally the same but the way they show up in different countries is a little bit nuanced um you know and that's the idea taking that and then adapting it to a market is great um, and i'll give you an example i work quite a lot with um, mr muscle so the cleaning products and mr muscle the name itself is all about power it's about you know kind of the colors are orange very vibrant and all around the world the product is called mr muscle And it's really interesting their positioning because it's currently clean less, live more. So it's about, you know, doing the job for you so that you can go out and enjoy what you love doing. But what's really interesting is how that plays out in different markets. So if I give you an example of two countries I've worked in for them in China and in Brazil. So in China, we were trying to look at people don't clean their kitchens with chemical based products on a daily basis. For most people in China, they see chemical-based products as for really big things. So when you've got oil built up or you want to kind of, you know, really do that big spring clean, they'll use products like Mr. Muscle then. On a daily basis, they're using just dish soap, which is very, very mild because they believe that anything in the kitchen shouldn't be chemical. So anything you use needs to be rinsed and rinsed and washed away. So if you think about simple dish soap, they're rinsing and washing that off the surfaces multiple times just to ensure that it's not there. So that meant that how do we sell a product like Mr. Muscle to people for daily use was a real challenge. But what we did was we took out all the sensories. So we had to develop a product that had no smell and that didn't foam. So essentially it looked like water and it behaved like water, but it really effectively cleaned. 
And that meant it was really powerful in China because we challenged their perceptions of the brand, but we also still connected up to that global strategy of clean less and live more because we removed the need to like totally rinse and wipe and rinse and wipe from people's lives because it was just clear they could wipe and go. So we were nuancing the global brand strategy to make it really locally relevant. But then you go to somewhere like Brazil or Mexico, where in order to clean, women have a cultural belief that foam is the thing that cleans. So if I'm cleaning and it's not foaming, it's not working. And if it doesn't leave a smell, my family don't know that I've cleaned. So we had to completely upweight the product sensories in, in Brazil so that it smells stronger and it foamed more because that's what they needed to believe in order to buy into the brand idea of clean less, live more. So it shows you that you can have a really powerful global strategy, but how that then comes to life in markets can be nuanced through your products and how you talk about them and the way you tap into the local insights as well. Do they know in advance what is the market that they want to go to? Like not only Brazil, like uh, ages and uh, mothers, do they know that in advance? Or when you're doing the research, you're deciding what is the right direction? So we usually have a, a, a target group. So for something like Mr. Muscle, we're always looking at people with families and then younger people coming into the brand. Because we always want to make sure is that you're recruiting in the next generation. You don't want to kind of focus on who your consumer is today. You want to ensure, okay, well, how is the next generation going to think about cleaning their homes so that we are making sure we're appealing to them as well? So there's often a core target that we'll talk to. And then to your point about geographies, often it's about, you know, we're either defending share in the market or we're looking to go into a new market and launch products into there. Um, or you can see, you know, we're not working and it's not successful. What's what's culturally not working about our brand or our products that's not really resonating. So why is brand strategy important for the company for the innovation processes? I guess it's important for them to sell and maybe to get good, better employees, but why is it good for innovation? I think, you know, you can you need to have both. If you're working on an innovation project, you can't just, you know, innovate without thinking about the brand that you're working for as well. But also the brand needs to have the products to make its strategy come to life and be credible. So that's, you know, you have to on any innovation project have both the brand manager, the brand director, the innovation manager and the innovation director all part of it because you're you know, through your brand strategy, you've come up with the world you want to create and the problem that you want to solve in the world and the tension. And then your innovation is really taking that problem to see, okay, how do we solve it through our products, our experiences? What does that look like? And I think, you know, it's about, you can generate brilliant ideas, but they don't necessarily fit with your brand. And you can have a brilliant brand strategy, but it doesn't mean you've got the products that make it credible. So it's exactly like you were saying about an employer brand. You know, they can say whatever they like, but if they don't have the evidence points there to bring it to life, if the two aren't in harmony, then, you know, it just doesn't work. And you can fail just because the brand is doing one thing and the products are doing another. And that's why it's really important two elements are together and through any innovation journey that they're both there um, throughout. Yeah. You know, when we you talked about the research and talking to people, I come from digital products and I know that we're doing research very, very, very similar. But in many cases, there is no touch point between the brand strategy or the marketing and the products, especially in digital products, maybe in consumers' products are different. And, and although we're doing something very, very similar, 
we, we don't converge into one process, which is doesn't make sense, right? If the brand yeah. is talking to a specific person and he's supposed to be the end user or the customer, it makes yeah. sense that it, do you know any companies that are doing this collaboration between the product design and the brand designer and brand strategy going together? I think there's a lot of companies that are doing it. Um, you know, if you look at some of the bigger companies like Netflix, Google, Meta, all those, you know, they're constantly talking to each other. I think in that industry, it happens a lot faster and you can learn a lot quicker. So if you're an FMCG, you know, you're talking about a longer process of changing things. I think what you do is a lot more A-B testing. So you get a lot more live feedback of, is this working, is it, is it not? Right. And I know, you know, when you talk to Netflix, you know, the way that you and I watch the same program, but because we have different interests, how we experience that program will be totally different. So the images that you would see on your Netflix homepage and the words you would see would be totally different than the ones I would see for the same program, because it might be for one story, you know, I'm interested in the character love story, but you're interested in the murder mystery in the exact same program. So they would hook us into the same program through understanding us. And I think that's the interesting way that in a digital space, you can learn what's working. Did someone click on it? Did they not click on it? You know, what, yeah. how are it's, we learning and optimizing? Yeah, I think it's much easier in digital products. First, it's like a very focused uh, technical point of view. Yeah. And you have all the algorithm working for you that will help exactly. you do that. And I know that they're gathering the information from people watching and creating the series based on that information. So they know that people after, I know, half an hour, they're going and having a stop to go to the kitchen to bring something. They would put a scene there that will enable you to just stop and go or something like that. So they're building whatever you, you want. So I yeah. want to go back to our previous discussion. And the last time we talked, I, I talked to you as one of, one of uh, women in innovation. You're the London chapter lead. And I cannot just, you know, not talk about it. And I want to ask you, what are the challenges for women in innovation today? So I think, um, I know last time we talked, we talked a lot about sponsorship, but I think through a lot of our events, some of the things that we're hearing about is, you know, remote working, women have struggled doing that. And I think, you know, even as we're talking today through a computer, you know, it doesn't work well for everyone. And often women have felt, you know, that their voice has not been heard when they've been on a Zoom call or a Teams call. They've got team members who are louder than them, that talk over them, you know, they wait for a break in the conversation. So I think, you know, presence has often meant that women have got a little bit lost. I think it's great now we're going back into the offices that, you know, people are starting to feel that presence. But I think what also got quite lost and quite hidden during COVID was the job that women do to hold teams together and to look out for each other, especially when you're working remote, you know, to, to care for team members, because, you know, we're facing a war on talent at the moment. People are fighting for people everywhere. The people that held your company together by making people feel a sense of connection to it, you know, that's a hidden job. And it was often done by a lot of women. So, you know, selling projects, winning work, that's often, you know, very overtly celebrated. But the other stuff that goes on in the background isn't so often called out. And I think a lot of women have talked about, you know, the hidden jobs that they do in workplaces. Um, and then I think the other one, you know, that is a big one is imposter syndrome. And we run so many events on imposter syndrome. And I think really? for me, it's it's a really interesting one because I think it's twice as hard as in innovation. So if you think imposter syndrome is not feeling confident, you know, feeling that you're, you're a fraud, 
in innovation, we're actually creating the future as well. So we're not even telling people something real. We're saying, okay, believe me, but also believe yeah. this thing that doesn't yet exist. So I think imposter right. syndrome feels like it's doubly hard when you work in the innovation space because yeah. it's, you know, you're telling people to believe into two sets of things. So it feels like twice as hard. So we do a lot of work in education in that space of helping women build their presence, feel confident in their message, but then learn what does that mean within the innovation space specifically as well. So tell me more about the imposter syndrome, because, you know, I, I understand what that means. I, understand, I have a few friends that really experience that, but I don't understand why so many women has that and maybe why it's even more stronger right now. So what goes through their mind when they're having that? I think a lot of it is to do with, you know, the, the school system and how we grow up. You know, if you're a girl and you're loud, you're often called bossy or you're called pushy. You know, it's the way that society often reacts to women exhibiting the traits of a great male speaker. You know, so you're seen, you're shut down. And I know Pantene ran a brilliant campaign a couple of years ago where they called out the difference between men and women. So if a woman's up at the podium and she's shouting, she's called bossy and overbearing, yet a man is called, you know, inspiring and motivating, um, you know, even just those little things. So I think a lot of women at school and throughout their education are conscious of not being loud and being present and being heard. And then that, when you come into the workplace, follows them through. And they often wait to be asked rather than giving their opinions first. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I, I sometimes I talk to women and sometimes it's like young women, students even. And I know that in general, women have bet more degrees than men and they're more they're better in school than, than, than men. They get better grades. In, even in, in science, that is like they're less if, in female students, but they're getting yeah. better grades. Um, although there are like these like uh, uh, ones who are the very very smart ones are usually men or the very less smart ones are usually men, like in the, the end of the curve but I think that they know that they are good they get the grades they know and still when they come it, it seems because it's it's in many cases a manly uh, company or manly atmosphere going there they are just getting two steps um, back and they don't believe that they're they should earn the position being there and, and yeah, that's and I why think, I, why is it? it it's so strange yeah. right it is and i think there's a bit of a harvard um, business review did a study of this and they talked about you know when you go to your promotion review most women will be doing the job a level above them because they want to have the confidence that they can do the job and then they expect to be given the promotion. Whereas a lot of men go into a review and go, well, I could do that job. If you give it to me, then I'll do it. So you've got two very different mindsets of, you know, people who want to feel confident that they've earned it, that they can do it so that, you know, then it's about recognition versus, you know, the other way is about, you know, well, if you give it to me, then I'll show you what I can do. And I think often yeah. women like to feel confident that they are doing it and then they you know step outside of their comfort zone a little bit more but I think you know when our last chat we talked a lot about sponsorship and a lot of sponsorship is about getting someone who will open up those opportunities that challenge you because I yeah. think we naturally hold ourselves back and if someone gives you the opportunity people always step up and they always shine but there's that fear holding you back from just stepping a little bit outside your comfort zone which is when you know you do your great work and that's when you accelerate into your career 
Yeah, I think that women sometimes take things too personally. You know, after all, it's business and the employer wants to pay you as less as possible. You want to get more than like, and there is this, this negotiation and it's not like they're against you or they don't appreciate you. They would like to get your best of, of talents and to pay as much as they can and not more than that. And you're, you're on the other end of the negotiation, you need to present yourself differently. And I know that women, when they come to, to their first uh, job uh, interview, they would usually ask less salary than men. So from the beginning, they're starting less. And afterwards, the negotiation uh, after a half a year or a year would be so much tedious because you're starting behind, right? So exactly. for, yeah. for me, as I see it, it's like we need to educate these young women about negotiation and being oh, more... Absolutely. You know, yeah, that's no one that to present to your side. Exactly. And we did a, a big piece of um, negotiation training uh, for, for women in London. And I know they've done a, a piece in New York with women in innovation as well. And, you know, I've been in my career over 20 years and I still learned something in the session. I was like, oh, wow. Like, you know, that you should never go into a negotiation on one point. I was like, oh, super interesting. If you go in with three points that you're open to negotiation on, it means that everyone wins one point each. So no one leaves feeling like they gave too much. And then there's always a middle one that everyone's not that bothered about, you know, you kind of vaguely negotiate on it. And I think that's a really interesting thing. And one of the perspectives of the people running the training was like, talk to people around you and see what salaries they are on, what they're asking. Because I think, you know, culturally, we're not used to asking each other, what's your salary? What's going on? And I know in Women in Innovation, we're really good at helping each other go, this is the brand you should be in. Because if you've got that confidence, you go into it. Um, you know, in a much stronger position. And they suggested as part of the training, you know, you should tell a friend, this is where my lowest level is. And if they're not going to give me, say, 50, then I'm going to walk away because I know I'm 50. And you have that friend to hold you accountable. Because if you don't yeah. verbalize it, it's not going to happen. You know, it's like when you're trying to lose weight, you say, you know, I'm doing yeah. this, this thing, because then you have accountability. So I think even in negotiation, working out what are the three things you want to negotiate on? And what is the like the lowest thing you will accept and being prepared to walk away if they don't recognize that. Yeah, I, I think that being prepared to walk away is something that most women would not do. And I think that more men would do that because they're more aware of the possibility of taking risks and they're more aware of the possibility that they will get along. They don't have to get this position. And from that, only from that perspective, they're coming to a better a situation when they're doing the negotiation because they're saying okay this is what i want and if not it's fine while while when women would go there they would might say they didn't appreciate me enough in order to give me what i want or i need to get it and it means about me this if i get it and and sometimes they're thinking about about it really, really differently saying um i want to have time for my kids so I need to go back a bit with my demands because I want to get this position. And because they're coming to the negotiation with these things in their mind, they will not get what they want in the end. And men would. Exactly. And I think you made a great point there. Often it's in our minds. We don't verbalize what we want. And if you don't tell your leadership, this is what I want they're not going to know unless they're really good and they've worked out, okay, each of our team needs different things and they're motivated in different ways. But often we just don't say what we need. 
and then we feel disappointed but ultimately we didn't ask for it either you know if you said to your employer actually this is what i'm going to need they might go absolutely fine but we have this fear of saying what we need yeah. as well yeah because it's like demanding too much and then you're like you're too much you're asking too much and and for women to ask too much is not appreciated as a man asking like because he it means that he knows what he's worth and if a woman would say it in some cases it will be like what do you think you are that you're asking that so they're putting their neck out there much more than the men so yeah. um so we're talking about women in innovation in, in in general in the workplace and we're talking about brand and i want to ask you about personal branding which is like in the middle of there right so how do you do this personal branding within the company or when you want to enter a new company How do you present yourself better? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. Um, I think it's, you know, following on from that, personal branding is something we don't necessarily think about. Um, you know, I, I think even... You know, in my company, it's like how much is, is the opinion of the company versus my own opinion and separating out who I am as an individual versus what our brand day is about is, is a challenge. Um, and, you know, for me, women in innovation was a, a really powerful way for me to start thinking about myself as an individual in the innovation space and what did I want to bring into it. So over the last couple of years, I've been really thinking about, you know, well, what is important to me? What is my leadership style? What do I want to inspire other people to do? What kind of doors do I open up um, to bring new people into the industry? And I think there was a brilliant thing I learned about doing COVID is that when you join a new company, you should give them a brand me book. And it was really important during COVID when you weren't physically meeting your employees and, and you know, your employer, that you can share this book about, hey, this is me. This is how I like to work. If you want to get the best out of me, you know, my style is X, Y and Z. And I thought that's really interesting, because if you think about how we all work, you do it through learned behavior. So I know how my business partners all work because we've worked together for over 10 years. So I know their brands. Um, but it's interesting when you're looking at how do you shortcut that and get your brand me across really quickly. Yeah. But, you know, what you're saying, again, it's harder for women. It's very vulnerable because you're saying this is what I need. Sometimes it's not what they expect from you. And sometimes this is not what they need, right? Maybe they want you to be in a certain position and do the work as they want it to do. To do. And yeah. when you're a new person coming in, you just don't know where, where the territory is. Exactly. So sometimes you would be more reluctant to, to share what you really do need. Yeah, and I think company culture plays such a big role in that. You know, we... When we bring people into a company, though, they have a cup of tea and lunch with everyone. We make sure that, you know, there are social moments. Um, you know, we're very lucky and privileged in our jobs that we get to travel a lot as a team, which is when I really get to know my team members. You know, when we're in New York for 10 days together, we're going for dinner every night. You know, that are, those are the real moments when I think your personal branding comes across. You, you know, you're in a work context, but you're also having a social moment together as well. You know, there are, there are great ways to accelerate that kind of relationship. Yeah. So we're almost done with the time and I have several few questions. I'm going to select the last one. What's your number one for women leaders? I always ask leaders, but I'm going to ask you, what's, what's your number one tip for women leaders today? It was a brilliant piece of advice I got given about 10 years ago that made me really rethink how I worked. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And that for me was a really powerful message because I think as you get more senior in your career, you can do all the jobs. You know, you've come up the ladder, you've trained, 
but actually where you invest your time and what you should be doing, you have to be really mindful of. So I had to really, every time I'm doing something, I'm like, yes, I can do this, but should I be doing it is the really important thing. Or should I be giving it someone junior to do so that I've got more time to do other things that they can't do? And I think as a woman, we tend to try and do everything. And actually the more senior you get, you have to start letting go of things. Um, and I'm a bit of a, you know, hovercroft uh, leader. So I kind of let it go, but I never let it go so far that if it went wrong, I couldn't get back involved. So it's kind of le learning to, you know, let go, but also, you know, focus your time and energy in the right place. Yeah, that's a great tip, I think, for women in general, right? Just to, to decide sometimes you're getting exhausted by trying to do it all together. And, and I think that gener generally for 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 us as a society and the fact that we need to decide sometimes you can get there is another like example maybe it's not exactly as you said but it goes to my mind that you could get a very good position somewhere in a in a specific company and you want to decide that this is the company that you want to invest your talent and time and mental resources in and and I think that sometimes people would go to what is considered a good company, good for their uh, resume. Is it really where you want to go? Is it really because you could get this position or even a better salary? Does it mean that this is what you need to do? And um, that's what comes to my mind that maybe it's not really directly connected to what you're saying. No, I think it's true. And I think you can go into things like that, knowing what the clear role is. You know, so you can go, OK, I'm going to take this job because I have this weakness and this job is going to address that. So the next job I know, you know, so I think you can go into places that might not be obvious as long as you know why you're doing it. Yeah. OK, so where could people hear more about your work and contact you, Chloe? Uh, so I um, am at Eighth Day, so you can reach me um, on LinkedIn if you want to or via Women in Innovation um, and you can sign up to the Women in Innovation Network, um, which will tell you all the events we've going on both. We've gone back face to face now um, wow. and also we're still running digital events as well. So um, if there's anything, you know, in that space in terms of imposter syndrome, training, sponsorship, negotiation, there's lots of resources up on the Women in Innovation website. Thank you. Thank you. It sounds really interesting. I'm going to check it afterwards. And thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Chloe, again. And okay, to well, thank you for having me. Sure. And to all of you changemakers out there, thank you for joining us. And if you want to learn more about what I do, go to invincibleinnovation.com. And I'll see you next week with another innovative, insightful talk. See ya. Bye. I'm Adima Zaukario, and you've been listening to the Invincible Innovation Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, invincibleinnovation.com, where you can learn more about our programs and my book, Innovating Through Chaos. I'll be waiting for you next week in our next episode. Thank you for listening.